Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. This is the a bonus episode. Um, we've gotten some interest and some questions as it relates to the book that uh, Garrett and his co-author uh, Michael McKay wrote, From Darkness Unto Light, Joseph Smith's Translation and the Publication of the Book of Mormon. And so I wanted to ask Garrett a couple of questions about the book specifically uh, to try to understand a little bit more some of the things that are that are in it. Um, we just did two a two part podcast where we talked about the translation of the plates, and you were able to hit a lot of things. Yeah, basically the entire book. The entire, so, the entire yeah. book. So you don't it's, need to buy it. It's really you not a don't. way of like. <laughs> yeah, you could buy the book and read it, or you could just listen to the podcast. You can see how you know this is not the best marketing, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or you could just go to the Gospel Topics essay and not listen to this podcast. Yeah, and really. Not read I the mean, book. we already came up with the fact that if you just read that New Era article, we already know everything. So, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of good stuff in the book, though, as as a way of having the sources in front of you. Um, and that's, I think, the the reason why Mike and I wrote it was to help describe a historical narrative of the events that surrounded the translation, you know, so there, there are things in there that, that you get from these various other sources. Like, you know, I think everybody has an idea that Lucy Harris is not a fan of Joseph Smith and the gold plates, but, but a lot of people don't know is that Lucy Harris, this is Martin Harris's wife, that she actually initially, when they, when, when they first talked to her about it, actually offers to pay for the printing of the book herself with money she has squirreled away rather than um, uh, Martin. Martin's not even there yet. Um, but when they refuse to show her the plates, I mean, I mean, there's this is from Lucy Max Smith's book. There's two Lucys. It's, it's actually very unfortunate for early uh, Latter-day Saint history that uh, there, there's two women that are very prominent in this early story, and they're both named Lucy. And so you end up having to say Lucy Harris and Lucy Smith. Anyway, Lucy Smith says that when Martin and, and Lucy Harris come down to Harmony, that Lucy Harris is so desperate to try to find the plates on her own because, you know, Joseph can't show them to her, that she starts digging up the yard everywhere around Joseph's house to try to find them. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty interesting story. So... You know, that kind of narrative helps bring this to light at the same time as we describe the mechanics of translation. I mean, we talk about in the book um, all about the stolen 116 pages. Uh, I mean, we, we still use the term lost manuscript because that's what everyone else uses. But but the reality is these things are stolen. I mean, it, it's really weird that we call them lost, in fact. I mean, I, I was... Uh, <laughs> on uh, uh, Hank Smith and John Bytheway's podcast talking about it. I'm like, this is the weirdest thing ever, right? We know they were stolen. We know because God tells Joseph in Doctrine and Covenants section 10 that they were stolen. And yet we still call them the lost 116 pages. Like Martin Harris put them down in an airport and then 
got up to catch his flight without taking them with him. I mean, if I walked outside right now and my car wasn't in my garage where I parked it, I would not say, I, I just lost my car. It's lost. Where is it? I don't. I, I know I have a car. Someone has stolen my car, right? And, and that's what happens with the pages. We talk all about that. I mean, the, again, the reality is, is that there are all kinds of theories about what happens to those pages, but we don't really know. And in this case, the, you know, the, the constant effort to blame Lucy Harris, you know, which we know she's in opposition. We know she's digging up the yard, looking for gold plates. We know that she's deliberately antagonistic towards Joseph uh, about it. But the Lord in Doctrine and Covenants section 10 says that it is men, a, a group of men who have taken those pages and plan to alter them and to change them. There's another really interesting aspect of the book that I think people might enjoy, and that is the description of Martin Harris taking those characters to the East. I mean, um, it, it, we have our traditional story that, 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 that's in Joseph Smith history, and so it's in our Pro of Great Price. And even that story says that it comes from Martin Harris. Well, um, one thing that was really hard to figure out as we were writing the book was why in the world did they go to Charles Anthon? I mean, Charles Anthon, I mean, this is, you know, I don't mean any disrespect to my co-host, uh, but Charles Anthon is an adjunct professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how could you possibly mean any disrespect? Right. I mean, well, I'm just saying, look, I mean, not to, that's, the, that's how, you know, obviously there might be people listening to this that are also adjunct professors. I was an adjunct professor as well for 10 years. I understand what it's like to be an adjunct professor. No, no, it's fine. No, <laughs> I, now I'm trying to dig out of the hole. I, I didn't mean to throw Richard into, but you know, he, uh, he's an adjunct professor at the university of, of Utah, but he teaches graduate classes. I mean, he's kind of underselling it there, but anyway, um, um, it's weird that they go to Charles Anthon and it's one of those inexplicable things from our history. I mean, the reason why is Charles Anthon, you know, is not an Egyptologist. Okay. Charles Anthon is a classicist. Charles Anthon, you know, if you want to, if you want to study, you know, Homer's Iliad in Greek, I guess you can, you know, he's the person you go visit is Charles Anthon. Right. But, He's done nothing on anything surrounding this. And so it, it just didn't really make any sense. Now, in our, in our second, in the part two of our podcast, we talked about uh, with the Jonathan Hadley source where he talks about and mentions specifically that they go to Samuel Mitchell. Samuel Mitchell is a full professor, and he's actually a really big deal. He is considered America's foremost authority on... What you would think is, oh, Egyptology, right? Because they're going to go get these characters translated. No. Remember, the only reason why you know that the Book of Mormon is written in Reformed Egyptian is the Book of Mormon tells you that. <laughs> so you actually don't know that the Book of Mormon is written in Reformed Egyptian until, as the book is translated, it says, we wrote in Reformed Egyptian. We would have written in Hebrew if, you know, the plates had been sufficiently large. But the Hebrew has been altered by us also. I mean, you know, the whole thing. Well... Joseph hasn't translated any of it yet. The angel has said to him that this, that this record contains an account of the ancient inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. 
So all Joseph has is that information from the angel. And what has the angel told him? This is a record of ancient Americans. So why do they go to Samuel Mitchell? Well, Samuel Mitchell just so happens to be America's foremost authority on ancient Native American civilizations. That makes a lot more sense that that's the reason why they go to him. Well, uh, and it, it seems like that the order is actually reversed. That they go to Samuel Mitchell first because he's the authority on ancient American languages that Martin Harris goes to him first. Samuel Mitchell, you know, whatever he says to him, he, he, he apparently sends them off to Charles Anthem. Well, why did Charles Anthem, this adjunct professor of Greek and Latin, you know, classics, um, you know, Charles Anthem might very well have said to uh, uh, Martin Harris, oh, they, these characters are Assyrian and they're, you know, uh, Chaldaic. One has no idea how Charles Anthem would know that since that's not what he's trained in, um, which I like to ascribe to the fact that all professors claim to know more than they've actually been taught. So, you know, again, now I'm including both adjunct professors and other professors oh. all claim to have more information than they know. No question. Yeah. Um, at any rate, one of the things that was really cool, some of this has come of, uh, research has come out of uh, uh, Richard Bushman's work, who uh, wrote the foreword uh, to the book From Darkness Unto Light. Um, and, and that is that Charles Anthon was actually engaged in a, in a business uh, proposition with a guy in England who was trying to publish, you know, dime store novels, essentially, of accounts of Native Americans. And he actually writes to Charles Anthon and tells him to send me any stories you can get a hold of, true or not, they will sell. And suddenly it starts to make more sense why it is that Charles Anthon wants to get a hold of that record. Martin Harris comes and tells him, Here's a record of these ancient inhabitants of America. And Charles Anthon sees some dollar signs and says, this is exactly what my buddy's looking for in England. Bring it to me. And then, you know, he doesn't know what the gold plates are or anything like that. He just thinks this is a story of Native Americans and maybe I can profit off it. Um, that paints university professors in a kind of light where we're so poor, we're willing to do anything for money. And yet at the same time, also true. Um, so at any rate, uh, uh, there, there's some good stories in that. Another aspect of the book that I think is really helpful is, aside from obviously all the accounts of translation, is the account of the publication of the Book of Mormon, which we talked a little bit about in those podcasts. But I mean, the 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 attempt to get it tra to get it published is a really big deal and something that you know President Oaks actually mentioned in conference a few years ago. Uh, actually citing to to the book, in fact, of the faith that it took Joseph Smith to have to go through all of the difficulties of trying to get it published to finally have Grandin publish it. It was not just a foregone conclusion. It was something that required Joseph and Martin both to continue to persevere even after the translation's done. So, I, I mean, there I, I think there's some, there's some great uh, anecdotes in there. There's some great stories, but it's a way of really coming to know this era and the translation in a way that you wouldn't be able to know otherwise. And that, um, um, I think that's for any, for lack of any other reason, that's a good reason to, to, to take a look at the book. No, those are great. I, I, I would love, I don't know why this is my 
favorite story in, in the book. It doesn't necessarily even make sense that it's my favorite, but it is. And it relates to... That's because you're an adjunct professor. <laughs> That's correct. That's right. I don't understand <laughs> the difficult... In a few years. Oh, oh, please let me know. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the this is kind of a, a mockery of academia in, in that sense. But, uh, I mean, it, the... the, the, the uh, the the tiered differences, but uh, I, I'm yes, it yeah. is. Well, but but yeah, I am I, I am mocking Richard. No, I'm just <laughs> so so it's this idea of um, Joseph has something. He has to have something. People are hefting something, in uh, whether it's covered, it's in a, it's in a box, it's whatever it is. And there's lots of different ideas as to what this possibly could be. Certainly isn't gold plates. Certainly couldn't be that, obviously. Certainly not gold plates that he found after an angel showed him where they were, right? But that this idea, maybe he fashioned tin or, or whatever it is. But just it, it's, it's a, smil, a small or just a short relative story. But uh, this idea of even how he was able to get the wood to build the box and how, and how eventually you're like, well... I mean, you get to a certain point where, you know, how did he get it? Well, I mean, certainly the book's going to explain, you know, the reactions of some people and the, and the reality of those plates. I mean, <clears throat> part of the problem of Joseph Smith, and this is, this is what we've talked about in previous podcasts, is, you know, that Joseph Smith has something. He has plates. You can't simply chalk off, uh, chalk up Joseph Smith to, oh, I'm sure he thought he had had visions. I mean, like we did in a previous podcast talking about Joseph Smith and, and someone's claim, well, may maybe, maybe he had psychedelic mushrooms he was using. Okay, well, maybe he did. And that did those mushrooms also turn into 70 pounds of gold plates? Apparently not, right? So the reality is he has plates. And it's not just him who sees them and feels them. It is many other people who do. And so even Isaac Hale, who is writing an antagonistic affidavit, who's writing because he despises his son-in-law, even Isaac Hale talks about lifting the box the plates are in. And so the reality of the plates and the witnesses of the plates, one of the other witnesses we mentioned in the book of the plates is actually Josiah Stoll, who says that when Joseph is handing the plates through the window, that the covering that is over them kind of gets caught up and peeled off a little bit and Josiah still sees the side of the plates. Um, so there's some other really cool anecdotes in there. Um, but yet, you know, it doesn't directly um, address the various ways that people have tried to um, dismiss Joseph Smith's ownership of plates. But it, it certainly addresses, you know, the fact that he has them. I mean, Martin Harris is going to say, for instance, that when he picked up the box, because he wasn't allowed to see the plates, I know we think of him as one of the three witnesses, but that's a lot further down the road, that when he lifts the box early on, he can hear the metal inside, and he can feel the weight of it. And that is one of the things that convinces him this must really be from God, because he knows how poor the Smiths are, and he knows well, any amount of metal, of any kind of metal, if this is the cheapest tin that exists, the Smiths can't afford 70 pounds of metal. So there must be something real in this book. And something he, must be. And he can't afford any kind of metal because how did they get the wood to build the box? Because they they have to get they have to borrow money to get the They have to get a loan to buy the wood to build the box. To hide the plates in. Yeah, right. I mean 
And, you know, even during the time period that Joseph's translating the plates, his parents are going to lose their home. I mean, they're not going to be able to make the payments on it. I mean, understanding these people as as real people and in the narrative um, as the book goes through, hopefully that it makes it easier for people to understand translation, the miracle of translation, and that yes, there's antagonists. There's always been antagonists saying, oh, it's not really from God. Let me give you another explanation. But all of those other explanations run up against a couple of problems. The first is Joseph Smith has something. And no one yet has been able to come up with a really good argument for what it is. Well, maybe he stole a whole bunch of tin and fashioned a bellows and figured out how to become a tinsmith and 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 pounded the tin down into sheets and then found a way to tarnish the tin to make the tin look like gold and then found a way to etch the tin to make those etchings that now look like gold to also look like their ancient etchings to the point where you could trick people who've seen gold like Martin Harris and and fool them to the point that they all think this is from God, and also at the same time fool them into thinking that they're seeing an angel. So apparently you're not only a fraudulent tinsmith, you're also really good at the distribution of those psychedelic mushrooms. You're doing all these things at the same time. I mean, the reality is all of those alternative explanations don't actually have evidence. What do they have? They have someone saying, well, I don't want to believe that he actually has gold plates from God. But he has something. So wouldn't it make sense if it actually was a set of copper printing plates that he just found discarded out in the woods? I, I, I mean, I, I, I guess that's possible. People are just, you know, usually throwing out copper printing plates instead of using the very valuable copper in them they just go and dump them on the top of a mountain i mean sure i mean like is it, when you say is there is that a possible thing well sure it's a possible thing do you have any source that suggests that at all no do the people who have worked in printing shops like oliver cowdery and martin harris and hiram smith do they think that they look like copper printing plates do the description of the plates from anyone who sees them say that they look like copper printing plates no but that would help me sleep at night if they were, right? And, th- and that's that's where we're at, is that the, the existence of the gold plates is such a an essential aspect to Joseph Smith's prophetic call because those plates and the witnesses of them represent the hardest thing to dismiss about Joseph Smith's truth claims. You can say all you want that he was smoking peyote before they realized what it was, and that's the reason why he thought he had visions. But he didn't think that he had gold plates, nor did all the other people around him. And so where did they come from? Well, Joseph tells you, an angel gives them to you. So, I mean, that's some of the things we'll come out to. I think that by, you know, part of the reason of writing the book was to help provide people the, the historical accounts of translation. What witnesses of the translation said they saw or how they understood it and at the same time highlighting that those involved think that this is a miracle from god the people who know the most are the ones who are the most certain that it's a miracle and i think that's one of the great takeaways from it thank you for listening to the standard of truth podcast hosted by historian dr garrett dirkmott If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com.
Until next time.